Matthew Taylor, it's very good to have you with me here for 20 Questions With. I say here, we're doing it remotely. You are the Chief Executive of the NHS Confederation, and I want to get a sense in this interview of what that actually is, and thereby, I hope, get a, a real understanding from you as best I can of what the challenges are facing the NHS, what you think needs to be done. And it's a critical year, both because of the junior doctor strikes, but also because we're in a general election year. I should also say that you've held various positions over the years. So you led the RSA and just flesh that out for us, what exactly that stands for. It's the Royal Society for the Encouragement of Arts, Manufacturers and Commerce, but it's a kind of membership organisation stroke think tank stroke social action organisation. Before that, you were heavily involved in New Labour. You helped write, I think, the 1997 New Labour Manifesto. Tony Blair put you in charge of the Number 10 Policy Unit for a bit. So clearly you have a political background, but your role now very much is as the Chief Executive of the NHS Confederation. I'm sure if I ask you a political question, you'll answer that in a personal capacity. Well, let's see what the question is, Matthew, eh? Let's get started in really simple terms so that we can all understand what is the NHS Confederation and does it matter? So the NHS Confederation is an organisation that represents all parts of the health service in England, Wales and Northern Ireland. So we represent trusts, you know, that's like hospitals, mental health trusts, community trusts. Uh, we represent systems. So this is the new integrated care systems. There's 42 of them that oversee and essentially commission health services across uh, England. But we also represent primary care, primary care uh, networks and primary care federations. So we represent all parts of the system. And our job is to make sure that the public government, non-governmental organisations, commercial partners, understand the views of leaders across the health service, those people who are responsible for, for providing health services. What is the difference between you and NHS England? So NHS England is the arms, arms length body that runs the health service. Uh, so what happens is that the Department of Health oversees policy uh, for the health service. Uh, it's Department of Health and Social Care, so it also oversees uh, social care. It provides certain parts of the health infrastructure, but the vast majority of funding for the NHS goes to NHS England, which is, as I say, an arm's length body with its own board, its own chair, and then it oversees the delivery of national uh, of the National Health Service through those systems and trusts that I talked about. So, who are you guys beholden to? I mean, are you are you essentially advocates on behalf of the NHS? So I'm accountable to my board, but I'm accountable to my members, and uh, half my board is made up of uh, of the members uh, of of the confederation. Um, we are the voice of the le leaders within uh, the health service, but we're more than that. We are increasingly also a body that is there to support our members to drive change and improvement in the health service. So I, I believe very strongly in all my years of, of experience running organisations trying to lead change lead change in politics have taught me that the most effective organizations the most effective solutions have this characteristic they combine kind of top-down drivers of change you know, strategy and accountability things like that lateral sideways on drivers of change which are to do with culture professionalism the way in which leaders support and challenge each other and then bottom-up drivers which is responding to citizens clients, customers, communities. So we are trying to have a health service which is better balanced. The health service traditionally has been too hierarchical, too centralised. What we're trying to do is to argue for a health service where there's a better balance, where yes, the centre has got an important role, politicians, NHS England, but also what drives the health services is a lot more to do with the way in which leaders challenge and support each other, learn from each other, and also the way we respond to the communities we serve. Do you have any powers? No, we don't have uh, powers as such. We do as part of the NHS Confederation. We uh, have NHS employers, which is the organisation that oversees the HR function. And we're responsible for a negotiation uh, of terms and conditions within the health service, but only with the mandate the government gives us. So the industrial action that's taken place in many ways has been out of our hands because there is a limit to what we can offer uh, unless the government sanctions it. But no, we don't have 
we don't have formal powers. That doesn't mean we don't have power. And I think the Confed in the last few years has become a more important organization in terms of shaping policies within the health service, and particularly in relation to the, those ICSs, those 42 systems that, that oversee the commissioning of healthcare. So just in really crude terms, I mean, you're not a lobbying body. You're not there to say to the government, just give us more and more cash. Well, advocacy, which is what you're describing, is part of what we do. But I, you know, from the very beginning, when I took on this role, it was clear to me that advocacy wasn't enough, um, that we also had to be an organisation that tried to drive change and improvement ourselves. And that's been the journey, you know, that we've been on Matthew, since I I started and we launched a a big improvement offer for systems, so working with systems to say how they can do their job uh, better, more and more our work is oriented to change. And indeed, uh, in this year, this election year, we've, we've, we've made a decision, which is we don't think it's useful to be on the airwaves demanding more. The health service does need more funding, particularly more capital investment. But actually, I think our story has to be more... This is what our leaders think needs to be done to create a financially sustainable, improving health service. What we need is a government that that supports our leaders in doing what they know needs to be done. So it's not a we are unable to do anything unless the government gives us more money and more support. It's these are the things we think need to be done and that we're willing to do some quite tough things. But we need a government that will stand behind us and support us in doing that. And just, just to be absolutely clear, you're not party political the organization is not party political and you are a charity yes to both of those we're not party political we are a charity we observe the strict rules of the charity commission in terms of impartiality and you know that's something that becomes harder to observe in an election year because there's more scrutiny on you but no that's very much part of it and i you know spend time talking to ministers i spend time talking to officials and of course those are officials serving a conservative government at the moment but also i speak to uh, Labour officials, Labour politicians, Liberal Democrat officials and politicians as, as well. That's our job. Right. You've touched on some of the, the the needs of the NHS, but let's really get stuck into that now. What do you think is the biggest challenge facing our healthcare system at the moment? So the biggest challenge is that we face a gap between the demand that we face, a demand that is driven by three things really it's driven by the aging of the population that simple demographic truth that as we get older we tend to need more health services so to give you one statistic Matthew in the next 10 years the number of people entering the last year of life will increase by about 20 percent as baby boomers reach the later stages of life and the last year of life along with our first year of life is when we consume the biggest proportion of health resources so population aging that's one factor a second factor is actually increasing expectations and opportunities uh, so one of the things the health service we hear a lot of bad stories about the health service and what it isn't able to achieve but actually one of the things we're getting much much better at is diagnosis we undertake a lot more health checks than we used to we are identifying cancer uh, much more uh, uh, we're starting to identify it earlier in wider groups And that leads then to higher expectations, which is a great thing. I'm old enough to remember when a cancer diagnosis was really, for most people, you know, I'm sorry to tell you this, you need to go home and prepare uh, for the end. Now, of course, I think think I'm right in saying more than 50% of people uh, now live more than five years with a cancer diagnosis, and that is improving all the time. We are behind, unfortunately, in our outcomes, some other countries, but it is improving. And so people's expectations are rising. That's the second thing that drives demand. And when new drugs become available, people on access to that drug, think, for example, of the anti-obesity drugs now coming onto the market and the possibility of dementia drugs. Uh, so those two things drive demand. The third thing, sadly, that drives demand is poor public health. So because we have high levels of poverty in the UK for, for a country of, 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 of our kind and also high levels of obesity, that dr- also drives demand. So we've got a lot of demand, higher demand. Every day I speak to leaders almost every day. All of them will talk about higher levels of demand. And then we have, li- but we have limited resources. Uh, because you know we haven't had consistent economic growth, public spending has had to rise, taxes have had to rise, but you know there are limits to how much money uh, the, the the taxpayer can afford to pay, and you know health 
has lagged behind the pay, the money financial increases that we need over recent years. But we're also, the leaders I represent, acutely aware of the dire straits of other parts of the public sector, particularly local government, and we work closely with local government. So just to be really clear about this, to take that the first peg of your answer about our ageing population, because we're an ageing population and therefore demand will go up in the coming years, keeping funding steady, if that were to happen, wouldn't be enough because the demand will change. Yeah. So broadly speaking, amongst health economists, the view is that health spending needs to increase by about three and a half percent in real terms. So that's above inflation to keep up with those factors I've described, population aging, rising expectations, the rising cost of medical interventions. Over the since 2010, We've had uh, average annual increases in real terms of around between 1% and 2%. So over, over the last 13 years, the rate of increase in health funding has been about half the level that you would need to have to be able to uh, improve services. Now, that if you had that funding, if you had 3.5% a year consistently, you wouldn't just stand still. That would enable you to make further advances in terms of the quality of services, life expectancy, etc. But because we haven't, uh, what we've not been able to do is meet the targets we wanted to meet, uh, nor to take full advantage of biomedicine and technology. So that 3.5% isn't just what is forecast to be needed moving forward. It actually is a figure that we should have already been enjoying the benefits of. Is that right? Yeah, that that's what health economists on average will say. You know, they'll, they'll vary, but between 3 and 4%. Uh, and, that, you know, it's partly because, as I, well, for the reasons I gave, it is a population aging, but it's also, you know, the, the and this is a good thing, uh, that more treatments become available. And, you know, let, look, let's take one example of this. If we do see over the next few years, as many people think we will, we see drugs that slow down dementia. Well, that's a great thing. Uh, but those drugs will cost money. There's no question about that. And if they slow down dementia, but but they don't cure it, then it could lead to, although it's much better for people, it could lead to people living longer and having long, more health needs. So when we look at innovation, some of them can reduce costs, but some of them will increase costs. Th these questions around, this is a really interesting area and one that I, I, I think a lot about, Matthew, which is, you know, prevention. When you think about, we talk about prevention, don't we, in the health service, as if it's a, a kind of particular set of things different from what we do. But actually, in a way, all medicine is about prevention. You know, even for somebody who is dying, we're trying to prevent unnecessary pain. We're trying to enable them to have a, a little bit longer. So when we think about interventions and the, the impact of those interventions on cost, it's quite a complex matter. Uh, you've got two positions, neither of which I think are particularly helpful. One is well, prevention saves money. Well, some prevention does and some prevention doesn't. Or, well, prevention doesn't save money because we've all got to die of something. And actually, the truth is, it depends what intervention we're talking about. If you want the most cost-effective, uh, I'll ask you a question, Matthew. Can you tell me what is the single most cost-effective health intervention? Getting people to stop smoking. Uh, that is a very effective thing. But, well, <laughs> interesting. Yes, it is. But, if you look at people's whole life course, possibly not, because yes, they won't die of smoking related diseases, but they may live longer and they may get other things. So that's a really quite complex equation. Obviously, we want people to stop smoking because we want people to live longer and live healthier lives. Of course we do. But no, the most cost effective intervention is vaccination by a mile. So if you want something which clearly kind of has very clear benefits, it would be the vaccination, the HPV vaccination that girls have, which now looks as though NHS England now thinks that we can eradicate cervical cancer by 2040. Now, that's cheap. It's really effective. And it, it obviously, it, say, it saves lives. Uh, all, you know, if you look at that, I looked at some uh, statistics the other day that suggested for every pound we spell on spend on vaccination, we save £35 in terms of healthcare demand. So there, the case is really, really clear cut. In other areas, it's not so clear cut because you might be stopping people dying of one thing, but they're going to die of something of something else. So the reason that we don't want people 
you know the reason we want what want to treat people is because ultimately what do we care you know why we got health services not to save money it's to let people live longer healthier lives and so we want to spend money to enable them to do that the question of whether or not that then ultimately saves the country money is a, is a more complicated one and one of the things i think on prevention we need to do is to really focus on those things which we absolutely know will save money as well as improving lives and that's why i'm a, a bit of a zealot when it comes to things like vaccination and screening let's keep let's give just very quickly an example the the flu vaccine if that keeps people out of older people out of hospital or a lot yes. of older people out of hospital that frees up the nhs to an extent over the winter period. And I mean, it may also save lives. If it saves lives, then those people who would have died without the vaccine will live longer and may cost more. So it is a very knotty, difficult thing, right? Yeah, I think we can say the flu vaccine is an unadulterated good because some people do die of flu, but it's much more that it makes people who are frail or have other conditions. It does get to the position where they end up in A&E or they might end up in hospital or they might end up stuck in hospital. Uh, it, it means people aren't, you know, aren't able to work and that has an impact in the economy as well. So I think, you know, the flu vaccine is overwhelmingly a good thing and overwhelmingly saves money, as do all, uh, as do all, as, as do all vaccines. But you are right that, that, that when we talk about prevention we need to recognize that the fundamental argument for prevention is that it is that it means people stay healthier for longer and they live longer lives whether or not they save money is a more complex matter that needs to be looked at on a case-by-case basis now of course we do this in the sense that the national institute of clinical excellence nice it when it looks at whether or not the health service should provide a treatment it looks at how expensive that treatment is and how much difference it will make to people we we do in the end you know have to make sure we use our resources effectively and incredibly expensive treatments that don't add much life many life years or don't improve the quality of people's lives you know the nhs simply can't afford to provide them but in broad terms just because something costs money, if it saves lives, that's still a good thing. Of course, that's why we're that's why we're here. That's fundamentally why we're here. I should have said, by the way, it's the National Institute for Health and Care Excellence. I I was giving it its name from a few years ago. Something you do when you get old. Just to come back to this three and a half percent figure that you quoted earlier, what I think you're saying, if I follow your logic, is that in recent years the NHS has been underfunded. Yes. I- so I think we need to say two things. Yes, the NHS has been underfunded in the sense that had our economy been growing more successfully, had there been more money available for public services and had the health service had more money, we would have been able to improve services more quickly and achieve better outcomes. Now, is that the same as saying we should have had more money given the economic reality and the public service reality we've had? Well, I think that that's where I think our leaders feel when they speak to me, look, Matthew, you need to make the case for the health service and for funding, and particularly for capital investment, where we clearly are a long way behind similar countries. And that's a big impact on productivity, for example. But I think we would say in the health service, saying it would have been better if we'd had more money is not quite the same as saying we deserve more money if that money has to come, for example, from other public services. So if you ask a lot of health leaders, the number one priority for investment, they would not say the health service, they would say social care. And they would say that because they see the plight of social care. And they'd also say that because when social care isn't able to look after people, they're more likely to end up in A&E. And more importantly, they're more likely to end up stuck in hospital because there's no appropriate provision for them in the community. We'll come back to social care because it's critical, as you say. But this is a political decision. Of course, if there's economic growth, then there's more money to invest in services. But that doesn't mean to say that the Conservative government hasn't made a decision not to invest up to that 3.5%. And that doesn't mean to say that a Labour government, if we see a Labour government later this year, might turn out to make a different decision. Yeah. And, you know, fortunately, it's my job to talk about health, not to talk about the wisdom of economic policy or austerity. So, you know, the government is accountable for a whole variety of things. And it's accountable for the level of tax and it's accountable for the quality of health. It's accountable for the quality of other public services. So that's my point, Matthew. Whilst I might say, I wish the health service had had 
more money and we would love to have more money. That doesn't mean that we think that, as it were, we deserve more money. When you look at the overall economic situation and how other public services are having to, to, to deal with things. And I don't think, um, I think there's very few economists who would argue, who would say that the health service is going to be in a position to enjoy those kinds of rates of increase in the foreseeable future because the state of our public finances, the challenges around economic growth mean that we're just not, you know, in order to be able to put that kind of money in, we'd either have to accept much higher taxes or we'd have to accept even less money for other really important public services. Let's talk about social care and explain in no uncertain terms why it matters. As I understand it, if you don't have sufficiently strong social care in the community, then people who could be discharged from hospital cannot be because there aren't sufficient services to look after them when they go home. So that's true, but it is important also to recognise that half of social care spending is not on people of retirement uh, age and, and older, which is, there is a bit of a danger in the health service. So when we talk about social care, we we we, we, we suggest the only reason social care matters is to help us get people out of hospital. And I I think, again, the leaders I represent would really want to emphasise that that isn't their perspective. They do want to work with social care colleagues to get people out of hospital into the community. It's better for people as well as saving money. But they also recognise the role that social care has in prevention. And I think one of the reasons people end up, you know, on the shores of the health service and in the worst case, you know, coming into A&E is because the quality of care they're getting is not enabling them to stay independent within the community. Obviously, also mental health is a huge issue and people's mental health is affected if they're not able to get the social care they want. So social care is a really important preventative role as well as the role that it can play in enabling us to uh, move people out of hospital. What do you say to those people who might have a very strong sense now that the NHS simply isn't working? If you look at our waiting list, I don't know whether you can put an exact number on it at the moment, but it's in the seven millions, isn't it? There is an enormous amount of suffering up and down the country, not just people in physical pain, but also the psychological distress of not being able to be treated when you need to be treated. And as you've intimated earlier as well, the knock-on effects that that can have on the economy. Because if people are unwell or unfit, they cannot work or they can't, they're not as productive as they might otherwise be. Yeah, so the health service every day treats millions of people in one way or another. And it does that generally in a very caring and effective way. And still, even though the public has lost some trust in the health service, particularly in relation to access, and that's access because of waiting lists and access to primary care as well, dentistry as well. When you ask people about their experience of the care they get in the health system, it is still overwhelmingly positive. So the health service is saving lives, improving lives, looking after people, helping people stay healthy every day of the week and doing it successfully. But the reality is what I the answer I gave you to your very first question, Matthew, which was this there is a gap between demand and capacity. And that gap between demand and capacity means that people are waiting much longer than we would want them to wait, and that people aren't always able to access primary care in the way that we'd want them to. Although I think we, we sometimes overstate how bad that problem is. Um it is a real challenge, but but actually you know, GPs, primary care is seeing so many more people than it was even just a few years ago. Uh, dentistry is obviously a real problem. And you are right, of course, that the fact that we have millions of people waiting, 7 million people waiting, does have an impact uh, on the economy. It is part of the reason why we have so many people of working age who are not in work. Health and care is the single biggest reason why people of working age are not in work. Is part of the problem efficiency or an attempt to be efficient? So if someone's all gowned up and ready to have their operation and an NHS manager comes in at the last minute and says, sorry, you can't have that operation because something's gone wrong or there's a complication in the operation currently going on. And that person then says, well, could I have my operation tomorrow? And they say, sorry, not for a month. Is that because the NHS tries to work efficiently so that it doesn't create space for things going wrong? Yeah, well, that's a very good point, Matthew. I think there are quite a lot of reasons why we don't always work as efficiently as we would like to. But I think the two that stand out, the one that you've acknowledged, which is that, you know, we run hot all the time. 
if you look across our comparator nations, you know, Europe, America, we have higher bed occupancy than other countries. One of the reasons that COVID hit us so hard is because of the fact that we always run hot. We always have high bed occupancy. And I talk to health service leaders, they'll have bed occupancy in the 90% range, um, you know, most of the time. And that gives you very little flex. So whilst other health systems that have lower occupancy, more beds, were more able to have a COVID operation taking place, but at the same time keep going with their elective procedures, we just weren't able to do that. You know, most things had to stop during the harshest point of the pandemic cycles uh, that we had. So the fact that we're always running on hot is one of the reasons why, you know, people experience that because we're trying to do as much as we can and in a complex system. And if something goes wrong, if a member of staff is sick, um, if a procedure takes longer than we think it's going to, whatever, then that can have ripple effects. But the other is that I think we'd all recognize our systems aren't as good as they need to be, our data systems, our digital systems. And that's partly because we don't invest enough. There's not enough capital investment. And even as I speak, in order to get through this winter, in order to cope with industrial action, the health service is once again having to cut back on those budgets for maintenance of buildings, for investment in digital. That investment has suffered again as it has done repeatedly over the years in order to to, to fund the day-to-day expenditure to enable us to get through winter and to make some inroads into those waiting lists. Just on that efficiency point, isn't there a sense in which because the NHS is trying to run hyper-efficiently, it ends up being inefficient? And that, you might say, comes down to funding because there isn't the money to build in space for things going wrong. Well, yeah, really interesting, Matthew. I think there's two levels on which that's true. So there's the the level that, that we're talking about, which is that if you have a very intensive process with not much kind of flex at the margins, then it doesn't take much for that system to kind of get clogged up and for things to start to go wrong and for that to have all sorts of knock-on effects. And, you know, you can see that because if you go to a hospital in you know, winter or actually any time of the year, to be honest, if that hospital has got wards of people who are fit to leave, ready to discharge, but can't be discharged, often because the provision in community health care or in social care isn't there, that has a knock-on effect on the throughput in the hospital, which then has an effect on people being stuck in A&E who can't get onto a ward, which then has an effect on how long ambulances have to wait, which then has an effect on how long it takes ambulances to get out to see people. Now, we decided, I think, collectively in the health service, led by NHS England last winter, that the biggest risk in our system lay in in, low, in slow ambulance response times. And so, that's meant that hospitals have really had to pull out the stops. You know, put, I was in a hospital just before Christmas. They put more beds in the A&E department because they were committed to getting people out of the ambulances and get the ambulances back on the road, even if that meant there were more risks in the A&E department. Other hospitals have put extra beds into wards, used other bits of the building. So that's one part of it. That intense process means that when things go wrong, it has that kind of ripple effect and can lead to people experiencing things like late cancellations or whatever. But the other part is is a deeper question, which is that when you are under this kind of pressure, you're quite right that you you can't do things which ultimately could reduce demand and improve productivity in a broader sense. So you know, a couple of examples of that. One would be that there is evidence that if people were able to spend more time talking to their GP, that has an impact on how much they will use the health service in future. So if people have a longer consultation with their GP, get to talk more fully about how they're feeling, they have continuity of care, they are less likely to demand health care in the future. But we are not in a position to be able to offer those kind of longer appointments, that continuity of care, because of the intensification I'm talking about. And similarly, we have reduced expenditure in public health. We don't spend as much on prevention as we should. And of course, that 
ultimately means that we're not able to reduce the demand. So almost every health leader, well, I'd say every health leader I speak to, would love to be able to put money, to push money upstream, to be putting more money into community provision, into primary care, into prevention, into public health. And that is ultimately the way we reduce demand on the most expensive part of the system, which is the acute sector. Uh, but in order to be able to shift those resources, you've got to take them from the acute sector. And we can't do that because the acute sector is under such enormous pressure. So there's this immediate productivity challenge of how do you improve a system which is under great pressure? And then the bigger productivity challenge of how do we reshape health spending as a whole? So we're moving resources upstream, as one as somebody would, as some people put it, more fences at the top of the cliffs. So you don't need as many ambulances at the bottom. So we've talked about funding, and when one discusses the NHS in public, funding comes up, the question of whether it's underfunded, whether we could afford to put more into it, we've touched on that. But then there's this issue of management. Is it overmanaged? Is it poorly managed? Can you put your finger on the state of management in the NHS, Matthew? Because it seems to me that that could be a, a crucial plank in improving it. So here I'll say something which I, I imagine your listeners kind of shaking their head at with disbelief, but the, I, I, they just have to believe me. The evidence is really clear. The NHS is significantly undermanaged. A good management is what improves those systems that you've talked about. Good management is what enables us to use our resources really effectively. The majority of managers in health service are clinicians, by the way. So good managers also take the weight off clinicians so they can focus on patient care. But I'm afraid that because politically, you know, kicking NHS bureaucracy, kicking NHS management, look, I remember in 1997, you know, when I worked on the Labour campaign, then what was our a pledge card? What was our pledge card to reduce bureaucracy? So, you know, we were playing that kind of game way back in 97. No one likes bureaucracy. No one likes managers. But, you know, we've done research on this. We've published research on this. I talked to you know, people in think tanks, it's absolutely clear. But most of all, I talk to leaders themselves and they say we are undermanaged as a service. And of course, you know, the problem, one of the problems of industrial action has been that managers who are already stretched um, have had to spend a huge amount of their time redrawing up rotors, making contingency plans to deal with industrial action. So that's been a further strain on people who are already overstretched. Do you think the quality of managers that the NHS is able to attract is sufficient you know, I speak to leaders, as I say, all the time, and I'm inspired by them. These are people who work, you know, incredible hours. They work under incredible pressure. They're very insecure uh, in their jobs as well. You know, uh, they are subject to frequent inspection. And if that inspection goes wrong, not only will that reflect on them, but it'll be in the newspapers. You know, I've, I've spoken to I've spoken to three leaders in the last week who've had difficult CQC inspections you know and obviously they listen and they learn they don't always think the process has been done terribly effectively but this has a huge impact on them and their reputation and their sense of achievement in their careers so i find i'm i'm you know my breath is taken away usually when i talk to nhs leaders about how hard they work the stress they cope with the insecurity the scrutiny um that they cope with could managers be better well you know one is always trying to encourage the best people to become NHS managers and people to stay in in management. I think it's becoming more difficult now to attract people to the top jobs in the health service because they see how difficult it is. By the way, that's not just in the health service. I think that's a broader phenomenon, actually. I, I, I speak to people in other sectors who say, you know, people want to be on the executive committee, but actually fewer people want to be the chief executive because they're just aware of the incredible pressures that are attached to that to that job so you know there is always a question about how do you improve the quality of management we we have been thinking about that the confed and about how we could develop some system of of self-regulation for managers and strengthen the kind of support that they get so that they top up their skills on a regular basis and the way that clinicians already have to do so i'm sure that we could do better 
But the vast majority of managers I speak to in the health service are incredible people doing incredible work, but almost all of them are under an intolerable level of strain, which means that they are spending most of their time in crisis management mode, not able to use their skills to think about some of these bigger questions about transformation that, that we referred to earlier. It's interesting to hear you posit the idea of self-regulation. I mean, is there a sense that the NHS managers are not accountable or not sufficiently accountable? Oh, no, I think NHS managers are incredibly accountable. They're accountable to their boards. Uh, they are accountable if they are in trusts to ICSs, to NHS England. They are inspected by CQC, who, of course, you know, their reports are published, often very high profile. There are organisations that represent patients, and so they have to have proper processes to respond to patient complaints or complaints from other members of staff. So, no, I mean, I, I, I've i been a boss. You know, I've run a whole number of organisations. I shudder when I look at the levels of accountability and scrutiny that NHS leaders are under. I'm not saying it's not appropriate. This, this is, you know, this is life and death. And, of course, when things go wrong, like in the Countess of Chester Hospital, tragically, um, you know, it, 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 it is terrible because when things go wrong in a health context, the consequences are much worse than if they go wrong, I don't know, if you're running a think tank. But it certainly isn't the case that managers are, are, are not accountable. Okay, we've got some more ground, would you believe, to cover. On the question of computers, we've all been gripped by the post office scandal and clearly computer systems are integral to the NHS and will be integral to reform as reform comes. I would have thought, how do you guard against, how does the NHS guard against the sort of disastrous malfunctioning of a computer system that we've witnessed in the Horizon scandal? Wow. Well, look, we've got ground to cover and I haven't got that much time left. So I'll, I'm going to try to answer questions that I could answer for half an hour in 30 seconds or a minute. But the first thing to say is let's not be too negative about technology in the NHS uh, you know, we are making progress. The NHS app, uh, I think, you know, half the population, more than half has signed up to the NHS app, and that app will have more functionality added to it in the coming years. So, you know, I very soon, for most of us, we will make our appointments through the app, we will be sent results and notifications through the app. I think the app can play a bigger and bigger role in kind of guiding us in terms of, you know, healthy behaviours, using the health service in the most effective way. The overwhelming majority of trusts now have got electronic patient records. We've now signed up to a federated data platform that's going to make it easier for us to bring data together and to improve our efficiency. And actually, there are other systems which are behind us now, I think, in terms of digital. It do Does that mean we're where we need to be? No, of course we're not. And this is a point I made earlier. Unfortunately, we don't invest enough in capital in the health service. And when we do have to, when we are under financial pressure, as we all nearly always are, often it's those kind of digital budgets, the maintenance budgets, which are the ones to suffer. So we, we, we need to make further progress. And there are particular, there are particular uh, challenges. You know, we've found it difficult over the years to get it right in terms of accessing patient information. And we've had a couple of false starts where, reassuring patients that if, if they give us access to their data, it, it, we, we will handle it carefully. It'll be anonymized, but it, it could be of incredible use in terms of, of, of research. And I, I think that we can make more progress. That's one of the great assets the NHS had is that huge amount of data from people in such a large, in such a large system. And there, but there are still also problems. And just yesterday I was reading that our cybersecurity is not where it needs to be. And we've been subject to cyber attacks in the past. So, you know, but look, here we are, Matthew, you know, you're a politician, you come into power, you want to do something for the health service, you want to grab headlines, you want to improve patient outcomes. And someone says to you, one of the one of the priorities is investing in cybersecurity. So investing in something not happening rather than investing in something happening. Do you prioritise it? It's these, these are hard choices. Is Wes Streeting right, the Labour Shadow Health Secretary, to say that we should treat the NHS not as a shrine, but as a service, as a public service? Yes, I, I'm not sure who it is that does treat it as a, a shrine. I mean, I think it, it, one way I would agree with what's said there, but I don't think that's really what Wes was getting at, is that one of the things we probably need to do in the health service is reconfigure services where we need to. So that's where 
departments are not able to be successful they're fragile they they only have you know one consultant uh they don't uh um uh, aren't able to provide the range of services or the assurance that they should be able to but closing departments you know closing an A&E closing a maternity department closing a whole hospital sometimes the argument for it is overwhelming in terms of both cost and improving patient outcomes but of course it can stir up enormous local resistance it can become something that local politicians campaign about we've even seen people in the past elected uh, on a platform of defending a hospital so I, I don't think it's so much the NHS is a shrine. I think sometimes we can look at the way the NHS is and when people propose reforms to it and changes to it, we can say, no, 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 we don't want that change. But actually, often you do need to change. You know, one, Denmark, for example, is often cited as having having good outcomes. Well, Denmark massively reorganised its estate, closed lots of hospitals, built new mega hospitals. It, it can it, at the moment when that when when a local health system wants to undertake a reconfiguration like that, it has to go all the way up to the secretary of state. There's lots of scope for people to challenge it, and often it takes years and years and years to to make changes which actually are clearly necessary. Just on that capital investment, which you mentioned a couple of times, can you spell out very very briefly what we're talking about there, and whether you see the funding for capital investment to be in addition to the general spending on the NHS on healthcare in this country should should that count as part of that three and a half percent? So, so just so people understand the difference between revenue and capital, the revenue is on kind of day to day expenditure, which is large, the largest part of which is is staff salaries. Capital investment is investment, which is kind of one off. It's in buildings, it's in equipment, uh, digital, etc. We have our capital funding in the UK has been around half the average of countries like ourselves over recent years. And that has meant that we now have an 8 billion, maybe more than 8 billion maintenance backlog in there. So that's things which have been identified that need to be done. You know, buildings that are starting to fall down, bits of equipment that aren't working properly. Uh, and that maintenance backlog has doubled uh, in recent years. And that has a huge impact not only on staff morale and quality of services for patients, uh, but also productivity. It's really difficult to improve your productivity if you're working with using outdated equipment and working in outdated buildings. Is the capital investment that you say is needed, is that part of the general budget for the NHS? Yeah, so the NHS gets a, a budget which is made up of revenue funding and capital investment. Uh, and there's big capital investment, like the new hospital project, but then there's also this kind of budget for kind of day-to-day kind of maintenance. But often what happens is that that budget ends up getting raided for revenue expenditure for, for day-to-day services. And it's always easy to cut because, or easier to cut, because you don't see the effects of that lack of investment for a few years when the building starts to collapse or the equipment starts to break down. By the way, it's not just the health service that suffered from that. That that tendency to raid capital budgets to fund day-to-day expenditure is a characteristic of the public sector as a whole in England. But just so I understand that you talked earlier about the need for a 3.5% year-on-year increase, didn't you, in the coming years. Does that factor in, that, that need for capital investment? Right. So just to be clear, what I said about three and a half percent is that's what we would get in a perfect world. I don't want to create the impression that I think it is likely that we're going to have that in the years to come. We need more than we're getting in revenue terms. And most importantly, Matthew, we need consistency because what we suffered from for over the years is we get a settlement, it's not enough. And then in the winter, we get a one-off pot of money, which we have to spend really quickly. It's often earmarked for particular programs. So leaders want a bit want more money which reckon recognizes the demand factors i've described but they also want to have multi-year budgets so that they can plan properly rather than this kind of boom and bust short-term funding on capital we're going to need a bigger percentage increase than that because we are a long way behind and that's part of the reason that that our productivity is not where we'd want it like it to be three more questions then reform would you back substantial NHS reform? You say it's undermanaged, so presumably you want more managers. We've talked about cost, we've talked about funding. Is there, in your experience of leading the NHS Confederation, an area that is desperately requiring reform? And we've talked about capital as well, as I said. Uh, well, so the first thing to say is we're not short of reform. 
I mean, the NHS has been almost continuously reorganised for decades. And actually, we've had a really big change in the last few years. And interestingly, a change put in place by Conservative government, which was to move from the kind of competitive market way of thinking about health, which was created by Labour government. I mean, it was initiated by Conservatives, Kenneth Clark, but then accelerated by Labour. And we moved away from that model of competition to one that's about integration and collaboration. That's a really big shift. And we're only, I would say, halfway through the process of reaping the benefits of that more collaborative way of working. So, you know, we have been through major reorganisation and that has not fully bedded down. So the NHS is not kind of frozen in aspect. We're continuously reforming. Uh, If you were to say what are the other areas that need change, I would say primary care. And again, we're already trying to do this, but we, we need to accelerate primary care. And I think that's particularly about how we integrate, better integrate primary care with the rest of the health service system in a number of ways, including data. It's very difficult to share data between primary care and other parts of the system. Uh, We need primary care to operate more at scale, but also we need to see a future for primary care in which it's much more proactive in terms of using data to understand the local population and to reach out to that population. If we had time, Matthew, I'd say one of the really big paradigm shifts we need in terms of healthcare is that for all the reasons I've explained, the way we think about healthcare is that the problem is the public needs too much and we haven't got enough to offer. So the whole paradigm is how do we kind of ration and channel public demand? But actually, in a strange way, the problem is the reverse. So I talked earlier about vaccines. The problem with vaccines is getting people to take to to, to have their vaccines. Uh, so there the problem is actually not how do you manage demand, but how do you increase and get more people to engage with the health service? And actually, I've seen some really interesting practice in primary care and other ways in other places where we reach out to the public. We have whole day clinics. We invite the public in. And by doing that, we see a lot more people. We identify issues earlier. So I think there's a kind of bit of thinking we need to do about the way in which we understand the challenges of healthcare. And in some ways, it's about engagement as much as it is about kind of management of demand. So primary care is a big part of thinking about that. And then I think one other area would be end of life, where we're not getting end of life right. You know, I was sat between two health leaders a few weeks ago. One of them said, you know, I still have a lot of people coming in from nursing homes to A&E departments, you know, people who've got advanced dementia, not long, probably left to live, coming into an A&E department in the middle of the night. It's not right for them. There's not much that can be done for them. It's a distressing experience for them. It'd be much better that we would give them support to stay for the remainder of their days in a nursing home. Uh, but but the, the, the way the system works, those people are kind of you know, taken into an A&E department with, with very little benefit. And, and yes, it's expensive, but that's not really the issue. It's not it's not right for people. And then the other person on the other side talked about a relative of theirs who'd agreed a care plan with or or her, the, this person's carers and that person agreed a care plan with the GP and said, I don't want to go back into hospital now. I've reached the end of my life. I don't want to go back into hospital. I want the best care I can at home. But then they'd had a fall in the middle of the night and whoever was with them had rung 111. Of course, 111 didn't have access to that care plan. So they send out an ambulance and the paramedics see somebody in distress and they take them into any, even though that's not what they wanted. So I think we need to think about end of life care. And that's partly about data. It's partly about public expectations. It's partly about models of care because more people are going to be reaching the end of life in the next few years and we're not we're not managing it right. Should junior doctors, and many of them, of course, are not junior at all, get paid better? Yeah, I think junior doctors should be paid more. The government has offered them more. It's not as much as junior doctors want. Uh, I, you know, all I really feel, Matthew, is that I can see the pathway to a settlement of this dispute, and it will probably be something like what was achieved in Scotland, which is an increase combined with a commitment by the government in one way or another to trying to recover the ground that junior doctors have lost over the last 10, 15 years. And I think what's very frustrating, not only to the leaders I represent, but to patients and to the public, is that you can kind of see the basis for resolving this dispute, but somehow we can't get the two sides to reach that point. And I'm afraid I will probably be back on the airwaves again in a few weeks' time, once again saying to both sides, look, come on, you're not that far apart. Please show a bit of imagination and creativity because these disputes do have a huge impact. Morale, 
How low is it? You mentioned it earlier. How low is morale and what could be done to improve it? I think it varies from place to place and from time to time, but there's no question, and our staff survey reveals this, that people are finding it tough. People haven't recovered from COVID. You know, it's not like we had COVID and then people were thought, oh, you can have six months to rest and recover. You know, we went straight from COVID into some of the toughest winters to most difficult times we've experienced. I talk to leaders who say August is now like December in the health service. Um, and there is this this issue of what's called moral injury. It sounds like a bit of jargon, but it's not jargon. Moral injury is when, you know, people leave their shifts in tears because they've not been able to provide the level of care they want to provide. And they feel deeply troubled by that. So, yeah, there is a huge issue uh, of morale, which reflects the fact that we've got over 100,000 vacancies. It reflects what's happened to pay. But also, and I want to end, Matthew, on a positive note, also, you know, I just came off a call to a leader before speaking to you today, and I said to the leader at the end, difficult conversation, they'd had a hard CQC inspection, they've got a tough winter, things are difficult. And I said, you know, I'm, I'm sorry it's so tough. And she said, well, it is tough, but in the end, I am privileged to manage an amazing group of people. And in the end, however tough things are, we are a team, we do work together, we do trust and care for each other. And so there is still a lot of that in the health service and so the it, these are most incredibly challenging circumstances but people who work in the health service know why they do it and they still derive enormous satisfaction from it they just wish they were able to work in circumstances which more enable them to fulfill their sense of purpose i do just have to ask you a, a very brief uh, bonus question if you can answer it briefly and that is just to say to all those people on waiting lists what more could be done to drive those down if we didn't have industrial action, we make progress. It's important to say we had people waiting over two years. We virtually none, no, nobody. I mean, there's nobody in that category now, unless they've chosen to wait that long for for personal reasons. We've got a lot or very few people now waiting uh, eighteen months. So we are bearing down successfully on long waiters. We make much less progress when the industrial action is taking place. But if industrial action is not taking place, we are making some progress. But it will take years. And, and and it is those long waiters we need to focus on, Matthew. There'll always be waiting lists, you know, because it always takes time to arrange for a operation or a procedure to take to take place. Uh, so we, we are making progress. If we had more investment, we could, we could make more progress. But I, I, I want people to realise that partly because of the hard work of the staff we were just talking about. If industrial action is not taking place, the health service is able to achieve that incredibly difficult balancing act of meeting high levels of demand and making inroads into waiting lists. Matthew Taylor, thank you so much for answering my 20 questions plus. And we didn't have a chance to talk about the general election because there's just so much to get through on the NHS. It matters to so many people. So thank you very much indeed for joining me. Thank you, Matthew. Take care.